Hello and welcome to the Rule of Law podcast with Matrix Chambers in association with Prospect Magazine. I'm Richard Hermer, together with my colleague, making her first appearance on the pod, Jessica Jones. We're recording in the week following the coronation of King Charles III, an event that had all the hallmarks of a royal extravaganza. Bunting, bling, television shots of people you thought had died years ago, and of course, the obligatory arrest of some people who had the temerity to question whether hereditary system for selecting a head of state might not be the democratic ideal. But what was somewhat different to the norm was that on this occasion, the arrest of Republicans was purported to be effected under the terms of a brand new Public Order Act of 2023, promulgated only hours before the coronation commenced and introducing a range of sweeping powers of arrest and detention. All of this in the context of a more general criticism about the role of policing protests including under the powers provided by the relatively recent Police Crime and Sentencing and Courts Act of 2022. Now, although the arrests, including the head of the main Republican pressure group, received considerable coverage in the media, there's been relatively little analysis of the nuts and bolts of the new legislation and the wider context of so-called policing by consent in this country. One organisation that has consistently campaigned for the right to protest, not just this week, but for decades, is Liberty, the country's foremost civil liberties NGO. And I'm delighted to say that we can welcome back onto the podcast Liberty's director, herself a former leading public lawyer in the area of policing and protest, Martha Spurrier. Martha, great to have you back. Thanks, Rich. Can I just begin with a bit of context with the Act? Because you could be forgiven from reading the papers in thinking this was emergency legislation that was somehow steamrolled in just to mark the ascension of King Charles. Is that right or has it been um, coming for some time? It's not right and it has been coming for some time. And indeed, under this government, there's now a, a kind of fairly lengthy history of attacks on the right to protest through legislation. So as you said, last year, we saw the ushering onto the statute books of the Policing and Crime Act, which introduced a range of new measures which would make protest more difficult. Through the passage of that act, a number of people, Liberty and others, got some significant concessions in the House of Lords, defeating a number of government amendments which sought to take the law even further and make it even more crushing of the right to protest. Days after the ink was dry on royal assent of the Policing Act, we then got the Public Order Bill, which reintroduced the the provisions that had been defeated by the House of Lords last year. And then because of a quirk of the parliamentary process that it doesn't, we don't really need to go into, meant that they had a much greater chance of succeeding. So that then became the public order bill. The bill progressed through Parliament as, you know, through the standard stages. And then I think it's fair to say it was rushed a little bit in the final few weeks so as so that the ink would be dry for the coronation. But it wasn't emergency legislation or anything like that. It was, in fact, something kind of much more thought through and, and part of a broader strategy, I think, that this government has been pursuing for some time. And we'll, we're going to talk about some of the details of the Act in a moment. But I mean, generally speaking, it looks as though it's addressed not to policing generally, or certainly not coronations and royal weddings, but, but in fact, of environmental protest, that it's arisen in large measure because of the type of um, demonstrations and activities from Extinction Rebellion and others, closing roads, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. 
So I think that's certainly been the context in which the political rhetoric has been able to amp itself up, insulate Britain, Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil. And so we see, as we'll come on to provisions in the Act about disrupting national infrastructure, um, we see concepts of serious disruption emerging. And as I say, rhetorically, I think it is right that that was the political context in which this legislation was, was pushed through. In a funny way, I think what's more troubling, it's obviously a worry that people won't be able to use what you know we would say is legitimate protest tactics to get their voices heard. But actually, when you look at the measures in the Act, they are so wide ranging and they hand such broad powers to the police that we're not really talking about the minority of protesters who might seek to disrupt motorway traffic. We are talking about people who, you know, whether it's campaigning about racial justice or anything else, might find themselves not wanting to attend a protest at all because of the risk of a an interaction with the police that is either you know oppressive in its own right or leads to an arrest and then a conviction or just turning up and then facing this kind of oppressive policing in what before might have been seen as a kind of common and garden protest where you would expect the police to be facilitating and not um, using coercive powers yes things that i also think is notable in that context environmental protests and the disruption of things like the road network being the hook on which this legislation has been hung actually overlooks the fact that many of the Extinction Rebellion protesters, many of the Just Stop Oil protesters were prosecuted under existing legislation. So to say that this this piece of legislation was necessary in order to deal with those protests, I think just isn't right. There have been many, many trials under existing offences like obstruction of public highways that have gone ahead uh, in respect of those protests. So I do wonder the extent to which that was just a kind of convenient smokescreen to bring in this much wider, much more repressive legislation around, around the general right to protest. Well, let's look at some of the provisions and let's kind of start, let's begin at the beginning. And it's the creation of offences in Section 2 and Section 3 of uh, effectively locking on, which has become a kind of an increasing tactic that we have seen in environmental protests of locking yourself to a structure or locking yourself to another person, causing disruption, whether it's on the M25 or um, elsewhere. Martha, in terms of the provision itself, is, is, is there anything objectionable per se? I mean, if you are locking yourself to somebody and closing down the M25, it might strike people as unobjectionable that that's criminalised. So I think, first of all, locking on, we have seen, as you say, used as a tactic in recent environmental protests. We've also seen it used as a tactic for hundreds of years in protest movements, You know, whether it's the suffragettes or the civil rights movement. It is a, a kind of totemic protest tactic fundamentally a peaceful protest tactic, sometimes a disruptive one. So I think the the move to criminalise it per se is, again, uh, it's a signal of intent in terms of trying to chill the right generally. And I think, as Jess said, you know, it kind of ignores the fact that when you get into violent protest, for example, there are already a range of measures available to the police and the courts to you know, try and stop people from doing it in the first place and then punish them if they do. I think also one of the really worrying things about this offence, and we were, of course, accused, as we so often are, of being kind of hysterical when we were warning of these dangers, is that the breadth of the definition is extraordinary. So 
it really is if you are in possession of a bike lock or some super glue or some string. And when we said that to parliamentarians, they said, oh, don't be ridiculous. You know, the idea that you would be arrested for being in possession of a bike lock or some glue or some string is farcical. And then what did we see on Saturday morning at 7.30am? Graham Smith from Republic and five of his colleagues being arrested for what we now know was luggage straps, Velcro luggage straps, that were tying together their placards in the back of a van. So, the you know, and that was what, a few days after Royal Ascent? So I think, again, it's like, it's bad, even if narrowly construed, it is, it's bad to take a kind of tactic by tactic criminalisation approach to the right to protest. Because to be, to be clear, Mother, I mean, there are plenty of powers. If I go and block the M25 because I don't like something, just cause or not, court the, the police weren't waiting for this bill to come on the statute but before they could arrest me no no so what this is focusing is as you say a particular form of tactic that is used and has been used in this country probably for centuries yeah absolutely and it, and it's first use so we know that the six arrests on saturday of the of the republic campaigners were the only arrests made under the Public Order Act. So again, rather suggests that this was not a suite of powers that the police needed in order to be able to manage, you know, what was unquestionably one of the biggest public events of a generation. And it is telling that 24 hours later, the police had to row back and say that they regretted those arrests and reveal the the kind of unbelievably bare bones of the suspicion that those police officers acted on when, when making the arrest. So I think it's, you know, it's a bad law being handed to what we know at the moment is a bad police force that makes bad decisions all of the time and abuses its powers. And we saw those things coming together on Saturday. Jess, we're going to look at some of the clauses, some of the other clauses in a minute. But I mean, is this an example of where courts might look critically at certain provisions because they impose a criminal sanction, but in in terms that are vague? Is, is, that, is, is that offending any kind of legal principle here? I think that's absolutely a key issue with this piece of legislation. As Martha said, you know, ha- having anything like string with you could be enough to constitute the locking on offence. And police did a- apparently arrest on that basis in respect of the planned protests around the coronation. I mean, looking at the offences where you can be arrested for having on you equipment that in, in connection with a locking on protest, that seems to me potentially capable of capturing someone who, for example, is at a protest with a camera to record what's going on. That's a piece of equipment, you're there in connection with the protest. And while we can say, oh, well, people simply won't interpret it that widely, or or, or defenders of the bill will say it's not going to be interpreted in that way. Actually, that's just not a safe footing on which to police people's conduct and which to criminalise people's conduct. You need clarity in the law so that there's not that extent of discretion for police officers in the moment to have to be making those kinds of judgment calls. And in terms of what the courts are likely to think about that, well, we do have a requirement for legal certainty in criminal offences, which means not necessarily that it's entirely obvious immediately what conduct will be captured by the offence and what won't, but that reasonably with thought and with some legal advice, people can understand how they need to behave in certain situations in order to make sure they stay on the right side of the criminal law. Now, I know that if somebody came to me and said, I want to go and take photographs of a protest I think is happening for my art portfolio, can I do that without committing a criminal offence? At this point, it's very hard to advise a person that that is lawful activity, although I think anyone in the general population would think that ought to be lawful activity. Um, I think that's the problem here. And you know, when we get to consideration of uh, particular human rights arguments that people might run 
in respect of these offences. We have the same problem. In order for an interference with somebody's human rights, so let's say freedom of expression, which is the most likely or possibly uh, freedom of assembly as well, the most likely rights to be engaged in these kinds of protest situations, they are qualified rights. So there are bases on which it is appropriate for the government to restrict the exercise of those rights. But in order for those restrictions to be lawful, they need to be what's described as in accordance with law. And in accordance with law means it needs to comply with the legal certainty principle. People need to understand what the basis and extent of the restriction is. And then, of course, subsequent to that, it also needs to be proportionate. Well, you know, do we have such a problem with peaceful protest? Is peaceful protest so much something that we need to clamp down on that it's proportionate to potentially criminalise the person who happens to have some string in their bag, happens to be taking photographs of the protest? I would be very surprised if the courts thought that that was proportionate when push comes to shove. So let's look at some other provisions. I mean, there really are, I mean, we don't have time in a single podcast to look at them all because it is like a, it's like a smorgasbord it's of kind of vagary and probably convention, non-convention compliant provisions. But let's, let's, let's stop next at section 11 because section 11 is about the powers to stop and search. And it appears to give a power to uh, an officer of inspector or above who reasonably believes that there might be public uh, order offences about to be committed in the locality to authorise any police officer to conduct stop and search of people or vehicles in their locality without suspicion for up to 24 hours. Martha, have I read that right? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely eye-watering. I think it's one of the most eye-watering provisions of the bill. And I think it's worth, you know, before we get into the detail of that, of which there's a lot to be said, kind of stepping back, whether you're talking about the locking on offence, whether you're talking about the expansion of stop and search powers, you know, we talk a lot at Liberty about the shift of the Overton window, which is a kind of pretentious way of saying that there's been a real change politically in how these things are framed and talked about. And I was very struck when this bill was making its way through Parliament. You know, I gave evidence um, to a committee of MPs who were responsible for scrutinising the legislation. And just the nature of the questions was different from what I would have been asked five years ago. Is it legitimate to have a school run interrupted by a protest? I find it extraordinary, the idea that it wouldn't be legitimate to have a school run interrupted by a protest. You know, the idea of disruption is is kind of a new idea on the scene when you're thinking about how to legislate around protest. And the stop and search stuff is a really kind of headline example of this, where, you know, Theresa May rode back stop and search powers in the context of counter-terror because she saw that they were deployed in a racist way. She saw that they were completely ineffectual in terms of deterring crime and felt that in the context of counter-terror, they couldn't be justified. And then suddenly we see in the context of protests, suspicionless stop and search being rolled out, as you've said, Richard, on this massive scale, area-wide, when again, we know, you know, if you are a person of colour, you are 20 times more likely to be stopped and searched under suspicionless powers than if you are a white person. Tie that back to Black Lives Matter protests in 2019. And it is very difficult to see how a measure like this can be justified either on the basis of kind of public protection and public order, or just on an analysis of discriminatory racist policing. And again, in the context of the Casey report and the scandals that have beset the Met Police over the last few years, it felt to me with the introduction of those stop and search powers that it was just an an extraordinary act of legislation to hand those powers to the police in the context of protest. And that once you've done that, once you've done that in the context of protest, there's nowhere that things like suspicionless police powers can't go. 
It's interesting, isn't it? I, I, we'll turn to another provision in a, in, in a moment um, of the app, but you kind of raised the kind of difficulties with the Met. I mean, in one sense, I mean, Mark Rowley has come out to defend to defend the actions over the coronation because of seeming concern for the horses. In one sense, one would have thought that if you were commissioner, you you wouldn't welcome these powers because they place such discretion on your officers that creates a kind of an exposure for things to go wrong. At precisely the kind of moment in the Met's history, you would have thought it doesn't want these sorts of problems. But yet police officers, even liberal enlightened police officers, seem to want more powers, not less, don't appear to see the dangers of politicians giving them the powers. I think that's broadly right. I mean, in fairness, both during the passage of the Policing Act and of the Public Order Act, there were senior officers, retired and current, saying you're not doing anyone any favours by giving the police broad and ill-defined powers that are kind of setting them up for confrontation. And, you know, there are people, I think, who are thinking about how police deploy at protests, whether they deploy at all, from kind of closer to the establishment than just like NGOs like Liberty. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I think institutionally, well, we've seen, you know, the Casey report sought the Met's acceptance of institutional racism, misogyny, homophobia, and the Met resisted it. And I think Mark Rowley came out fighting after the weekend. The comms coming out of the Met in the run-up to the coronation to me seemed tone deaf when they talked about having a kind of very low threshold for disruption. I think it is, it's beleaguered, but it's kind of, it's still in sort of warrior defensive mode a lot of the time with the police. All right, we've got time for one more uh, legislative horror. And that strikes me, uh, perhaps the clause, I think the clauses that, um, or the provisions that I found most troubling, which were section 20 onwards, which deal with what are called serious disruption prevention orders. And they appear to allow a prosecution or a post a conviction or a police officer post conviction to apply for an order that for up to two years renewable by another two years that would prevent a person from participating in further protests, either by confining them to a particular location at a given time or precluding them from going to a given location at a given time or preventing them from going on the internet and encouraging others to go to protest at which there may be a risk of uh, a a lawful protest. Again, Mother, is there any form of precedent for these type of orders and what we're seeing seeing in this act? No, I mean, possibly in um, other countries. (laughs) Yeah, go on, Jess. I mean, the thing that springs to mind for me here, and it and it uh, it's linked to what Martha was saying about the reintroduction of suspicionless stop and search powers. The thing that this makes me think of is is TPIMS, terrorism yeah, okay. control orders measures. Yeah, yeah. So so of course those go wider. They apply sort of um, over a period of two years. A person's under conditions constantly. Whereas, as I understand, these serious disruption prevention orders. Just just for listeners who might not know what control order and TPIMS are, those are people who are suspected of very serious criminal offences, but without enough evidence to secure a conviction. Well, certainly people certainly people who are suspected of involvement in terrorism related yeah. activity. Yeah. yeah. And so, and so what we're seeing here, again, like with the suspicion of stop and search, is essentially a rolling out of powers that have tended to be confined to counter-terrorism to the realm of 
protest and to the realm of peaceful protest because i don't think anything in this act is premised on people being violent right this is this is premised on peaceful protesters uh peaceful but disruptive protesters you know there are there are other circumstances in which post-conviction orders can be made against people so for example people convicted of um football hooliganism can have football banning orders put on them that prevent attendance at matches those are much more limited in scope and in the kind of activities that they prevent people from doing. They don't disrupt people's ability to participate in kind of basic democratic life, which which these do go to. And, and they tend to arise from where there's been violent crime rather than peaceful civil disobedience. So I don't think there's a proper precedent. And I think it you know it is astonishing that the first thing that comes to mind is these really onerous measures, which themselves are heavily criticized and challenged for the disruption and interference that they put on people's lives. But in the counter-terror context, being rolled out to this kind of sphere. I mean, look, Parliament's sovereign; it can do what it it can do what it wants. But the domestic courts would interpret it in a way that needs to be consistent with human rights, if that can be interpreted in that manner. And then Strasbourg can or, or, or deem it incompatible with the Human Rights Act, and Strasbourg can say it infringes a convention rights. What's your take when you look at a clause? I keep calling it a clause. It's of course now a an act. It's no longer a bill. What's your take as to the attitude of courts when they see a provision such as this under challenge? Yeah, well, I think, you know, as part of a proportionality analysis, so as I was saying earlier, when you're looking at an interference with a qualified right, that one of the criteria that that needs to satisfy is that it's a proportionate interference. That will require courts to consider whether a fair balance is struck between the rights of the individual and the rights of the public at large that the measure purports to protect. Uh, I think an onerous measure like this being placed on a person who has participated in peaceful but disruptive protest as compared to the rights of the public to be protected from disruption of their daily activities the 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 infringement of the individual rights there seems so disproportionate as compared to to the protection of a public right to to live one's life free of inconvenience and so again i mean i'm sure this will be litigated and i i would not want to be the person defending the proportionality of it Martha, can I ask you about some of the politics of this? I mean, liberty as ever has been fantastic in both the kind of trying to raise the profile, letting people know what's going on, but also in terms of lobbying within Parliament. What's been the reaction of Labour? Yeah, it's a good question. Incredibly disappointing so far. So people may have seen that the other opposition parties have been consistent in their criticism of of this act and when it was a bill and then after the coronation weekend came out saying that they would commit to repealing it and would seek a similar commitment from Labour and we have yet to receive such a commitment. That approach is consistent with Labour's take on a number of human rights issues, whether it's the illegal migration bill, which is currently going through Parliament, the victims and prisoners bill, which we're about to kind of get our teeth into, a whole host of things which you would really hope from an opposition, let alone a Labour opposition, that they would be robust in saying, you know, a Rubicon has been crossed, whether it's a breach of international law. I think, you know, it speaks to a kind of prevailing wind in UK politics, which is politics by focus group rather than politics by kind of vision and thought leadership, where you meet the voters where they are rather than trying to take them somewhere different. and. You know, I think we all know that politics can be a dirty game and winning is winning and all the rest of it. But 
certainly from where I'm standing, there is a, a, a real void of a kind of principled stance coming from Labour on this and on some other things that's been really disappointing to see. Well, let me put to you then what might be the views of some of the people in those focus groups, which is, you know, are, are, are we in danger of making too much of this? I mean, six people were arrested during the course of a coronation. They were released effectively with an apology by the Met or an acceptance that they didn't have, they weren't exercising the powers correctly. It's raised in Parliament. It's all over um, the newspapers. There's concern expressed by lots of uh, elements of society. Compare and contrast, you know, pick whichever country you want in which, you know, you, you protest against the head of state and you get whipped away in an unmarked van and never heard of again. Are we are we at danger of being kind of too too quick to criticise here? Too worried about, the, you know, the march to uh, to an undemocratic state? Are we overplaying it? I don't think we are overplaying it um, for, for a number of reasons. Firstly, on this particular piece of legislation and on protest, Sure, six people arrested on Saturday and then released soon after, with the eyes of the world scrutinising the Met's actions. Take a smaller protest, take a more disruptive protest, take, you know, a racial justice protest where the heat is much higher and the community relations much more fraught and the vulnerability to police abuse of power much more real and potentially fatal but also correspondingly, less media attention, less political interest, less kind of scrutiny and accountability, then I think you're in really dangerous territory. And you look back at the moment when six people got arrested at a coronation and you think we should have taken that a little bit more seriously. But I also think it has to be seen in its wider context. You know, if if what we had what we had seen in the last few months was just a kind of narrow attack on some protest tactics, even if that was acceptable, which I don't think it is, because as we've talked about, I think it takes us into kind of uncharted territory for a democratic state. But but that's not all that we've seen. You know, a few weeks ago we had local elections where you had to present voter ID for the first time where the government's own commissioned research reckons that this could disenfranchise a million people from marginalised communities. We thankfully maybe don't see a kind of full frontal attack now on the Human Rights Act, but we have two bills live in Parliament where the government has stated on the face of the bill that they can't say with confidence that they comply with the Human Rights Act against a backdrop of attacks on judicial review and attacks on all kinds of different measures of accountability. So there is a reason why in the kind of international measures of human rights compliance, Britain is slipping down the rankings and that we now talk as, you know, as you just did about, well, we're not as bad as Russia. It feels to me a really sad state of affairs if what we can say is, well, at least you're not whisked away in an unmarked van. You know, there was a time when we wanted to be world leading on this stuff. I don't think anyone thinks that we're world leading anymore. And I think we've now got some bedfellows that frankly are pretty, um, we should be pretty ashamed of. Jess? I think that's, I think, I think, I mean, I agree with everything that Martha said there. I think it's easy in this country to be complacent about the state of our democracy because we think we rest on the laurels of, of the, being the mother of democracies and the mother of all parliaments and, and, and without recognising that the rights that we have and, this, and the, the fact that our democracy has been sustained over the time that it has is because of things like the support and, uh, of peaceful protest and, and citizens engaging in ways that protect the rights that we have and maintain them. Uh, we are now in a position where, you know, in respect of this act, the UN Human Rights Commissioner came out and said it was deeply troubling, wholly unnecessary, disproportionate. That does put us, you know, 
in a club with other countries being criticised by international human rights authorities in a way that I think should make us feel really uncomfortable. Those aren't who we want to be associated with on the international stage. And democracy is more fragile than we think it is. It requires constant renewal. And each of the, the steps like these that the government is taking that, that interfere with the basic principles of democracy that prevent people's participation in it, I think are things that we should be rightly troubled by. Well, that's a, a thoroughly depressing <laughs> point to end the podcast. I'm going to give a slightly more optimistic take, and that's actually drawn from some of these protests themselves in which we are seeing so many people, particularly young people, so concerned about the future of the planet for all of us that they're willing to come out in their numbers and onto the streets and demonstrate in the way that they do. And that is frankly inspiring. And it's a hope that whatever this government might be seeking to do to our international reputation, and it's having a pretty good go at trashing it, there is some hope in the future. Anyway, that's my that's my pitch for an optimistic end. So Jess, thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to your challenges to this act uh, in the courts. And Martha, thank you. And also, you know, thank you, Liberty, for, for doing for doing what you do so well. Anyway, that's it for this week. Thanks very much. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Rich.